Stanford University. Welcome. I'm Michelle Marinkovich, an Associate Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education and the Director of the Center for Teaching and Learning. And thank you so much for coming today. Usually in spring quarter, I don't have to thank people for braving the elements, but uh, to some extent that is true today. And there will be three talks this spring quarter, so I hope you'll note on the flyer that the next talk will be on April 30th and will feature Professor Umran Inan of Electrical Engineering talking about do you know what they do not know, they of course being your students. And then on May 13th, we will have Professor Stacy Bent of Chemical Engineering talking about the undergraduate research experience, friend or foe. And we certainly hope she decides it's friend. Um, but today, we're extremely pleased to have Professor Leon Simon of Mathematics talking to us on principles and practicalities of honors freshman honors mathematics. Although Leon is the 97th speaker in our series, he's actually the first mathematician since 1995, which was the first year of the series. But since it's clear that learning mathematics is essential to so many other university disciplines, clearly the art of teaching mathematics is extremely important for all of us to be talking about. And those of us at CTL know that Leon takes teaching very seriously. Not only as a classroom teacher himself, he is a 2001 winner of the H&S Dean's Award for Distinguished Teaching, but as chair of the mathematics department from 1998 to 2001. He especially committed the department to effective training of its teaching assistants and also to more discussion of teaching among TAs and faculty. He opened our eyes at CTL and hope, opened quite a few other eyes across campus to the problem of the very small number of poorly taught sections. But he rightly decided that students' undergraduate experience should not be marred by an unmotivated or untrained TA. And he demonstrated that a department can do something about this problem. Leon is also a stellar example of Stan at Stanford of someone who combines award-winning teaching with outstanding scholarship. He started his academic life in Australia, receiving a Bachelor's of Arts with honors in 1967 and a PhD in 1971, both in mathematics, both from the University of Adelaide. Within seven years, the time it usually takes just to achieve tenure, he was already a full professor at the University of Melbourne and was also a full professor at the University of Minnesota and the Australian University before coming to Stanford in 1986 for the second time. He had actually spent three years here as an assistant professor, and we luckily got him back. Since 1994, he has been the Robert Grimmett Professor of Mathematics. His research interests center on differential geometry, partial differential equations, and real analysis. 
the author of almost 70 papers and counting. He has won many awards for his work, including an Alexander von Humboldt Award, the, the Boucher Prize of the American Mathematical Society, and the Australian Mathematical Society Medal, all in addition to being elected a Fellow of the Royal Society, a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and a Fellow of the Australian Academy of Sciences. He has also been a visiting professor at such prestigious institutions as ETH in Zurich, Heidelberg University, the Max Planck Institute in Bonn, and the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. Liam is also a highly and warmly respected figure in the world of mathematics, as today's turnout shows. His 60th birthday was celebrated with a conference in his honor here in campus that was attended by noted scholars in geometry and partial differential equations from all over the world. And he proudly notes on his CV the names of the 16 dissertation writers that he has supervised so far. So thank you for all the contributions you have made to teaching at Stanford, Leon, and I now happily turn the lectern over to you. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks for that nice introduction. Uh, uh, when Michelle invited me to give this talk, I wasn't actually aware that, I'm the f I'm, that we're batting zero for 97 in the math department on this. But uh, when she invited me to give this talk, I, I thought it was going to be quite a chore. And I was right. It, it is quite a chore. But on the other hand, I realized at a certain point in, in the process that actually it was very useful exercise to uh, reflect on uh, what our motivations are, why do we set up courses the way we do, can we do better, and so on. So uh, thank you for the invitation. So I'm going to start out uh, by that uh, very question, if Bill Gates will allow. <laughs> Apparently not. Okay, there we go. So let's start out by the, uh, asking the question, how do people learn mathematics? And uh, uh, if we can answer that question, then we should have an idea about how they teach it. Well, uh, the first point I want to make is that you should be extremely careful about being too dogmatic about how people learn mathematics. Because it's an extremely complex question, and there's certainly no simple answer to that question. Uh, 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 one uh, historical uh, event that we should keep in mind is the so-called new math that was introduced in the post-Sputnik era throughout the world. I was in Australia at the time. And those people certainly thought they knew how to uh, teach mathematics, and they cer certainly thought they knew how people learned mathematics. And uh, uh, they, they proceeded to virtually uh, take over the whole mathematics curriculum and uh, they had very definite ideas about how things should be done. Uh, for instance, uh, they decided that everything should be couched in set theoretic language. So if, if a merchant is selling goods for $100 and he has costs of $80, okay, $20 profit, but that's too simple. That's just plain English. What you have to talk about is the set of his profits and the cardinality of that set as distinct from the numeral that you use to represent that set. 
and so on. Well, needless to say, this caused quite a deal of confusion and, and uh, angst, uh, both among the teachers and students and their parents. It did not work out well. So uh, I'm certainly not going to be dogmatic. In fact, there's a, a quote that I saw uh, dating from that era uh, on Australian television. It was a rather ac acrimonious panel discussion. <laughs> and at one point, one of the people that made this comment that uh, uh, there seems to be, uh, notice there's a little bit of extra nastiness here. He doesn't talk about the group of people, he talks about the set of people. That sort of rubs salt into the wounds a little bit. Um, uh, so we should be careful about that. So I'm certainly not going to tell you how, how people learn mathematics. Uh, that will only convince you that I know little mathematics, um, which may be true, but I try to keep that hidden. So uh, let's ask a slightly easier question. Uh, uh, what are the key characteristic skills of, of mathematics people? Well, again, that's really too general a question to be very useful. You may as well ask uh, what are the key skills exhibited by historians or writers. I mean, we could discourse uh, at great length on those things, but it wouldn't be particularly useful in, in uh, guiding us in, in setting up our honors uh, program and so on. So I'm going to uh, um, cop out a little bit and, and uh, ask a much simpler question. What are some of the skills uh, characteristic of math people, at least in the first stages of their development? Try and uh, focus on that. And that, that's actually a, a more reasonable question to ask. And I think it's the sort of question you should ask when you're trying to set up a program uh, uh, for, for uh, freshman math people. So let's uh, talk a little bit about that. Uh, first, um, uh, the first um, characteristic I would say, or one of the key characteristics actually, would be the ability to go slightly beyond the superficial and rote. In other words, you don't simply parrot back what you've learned. You don't learn how to crank the handle to get the answer out. There's a lot of that. So I mean, that's that can be extremely useful. You do want to learn techniques and so on. That's one of the things that the people that pushed the new math program didn't realize, that it really is important to have standard techniques that you know how to do routinely. But also, when you're developing your math skills, this would be one of the key things you're looking for. And let me give an example uh, of that. Uh, um, uh, apologies to the non-mathematics people in the audience, but I think you'll get the gist of what I'm talking about anyway. So here's two definitions that are familiar to all mathematicians. The first definition is this notion of a subspace of Euclidean space. And the second definition is the notion of span of a Euclidean space. And uh, so we typically, uh, that's one of the definitions that we typically present very early in a, in a freshman honors course. And, uh, and uh, then one, really simple exercise would be to ask, uh, using these two definitions, prove that the span, that's the thing defined in the second definition there, is in fact one of the things defined in the first definition. Now, most of my mathematics colleagues will throw up their hands in horror and say, well, what's the problem? It's true by definition, virtually. I mean, you simply have to take one of these guys and plug it in up here and take another one of these guys with difference constants and put it in up there and then check that it's again one of those guys in the second definition. 
So to a mathematician, there doesn't seem to be anything involved in that, but we tend to forget that we're dealing with, with students, even, even those entering our honors class, are likely to be very, very immature mathematically, and you shouldn't even assume that they know things like that. We hope that they do, but it's, it's not necessarily true. In fact, I claim that a significant percentage of the people that, uh, that um, score a five in BC advanced ca uh, placement calculus, that's the highest level in advanced placement, I guarantee a significant percentage would not be able to do that problem, which is a, it's a, quite a, su a surprise, I think, to, to realize that. So uh, we have to keep those sort of things in mind. So that's the first thing we're aiming for, that people can go a little bit beyond just direct dishing up of, uh, of material. Then there's a, something that's slightly less clear cut. It's this business about uh, thinking around a problem. Uh, this is one of the things I always try to push in lectures, that when they're confronted with a new uh, situation, a new theorem, or a new statement, or a new definition, they, they should think around it, try and think of some special cases, for example, or maybe they're already familiar with some analogous uh, earlier uh, situation that, that, that's quite similar. So it's, it's a little bit nebulous, but it's, uh, let me try to give an example of this, in fact. Um, uh, here's, here's one of the things, again, po apologies to the non-math people here, but I think you'll get the sort of gist. Uh, this is one of the things that we present early on in the course when we're developing the theory of linear spaces and vector spaces. And uh, it, it's called the underdetermined systems level. It basically says if you've got linear equations with more unknowns than there are equations, then you'll have a non-trivial solution. It's one of the sort of basic first theorems that you learn. Uh, and it's a foundation for many things. Well, what we should be aware of when we state a theorem like this is that Mathematicians typically understand immediately what that is, and they think about special cases. For instance, they'll immediately think, ah, I see, one special case of this is when you've got one equation with two unknowns. Well, our students don't necessarily think that way. They, 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 don't quite, they typically have not developed that ability to say, well, what, what are the special cases? Uh, what is this really saying? Maybe I can check out a few special cases, and I'll get a feeling for what the general uh, uh, theorem is saying, uh, that's a skill that's a, that needs to be developed and, and we shouldn't assume that they already have it when they, when they arrive in our, uh, in our classes. So uh, that's uh, uh, a second skill. Uh, third one, uh, the ability to strip down uh, a seemingly reasonably complicated statement uh, and reduce it to its essentials, to work out what the real essence of the problem is as distinct from the full statement. I mean, again, this is quite a sophisticated skill, and it takes time to develop this. So here's an example of that. Uh, the, you, you take the, uh, the fundamental theorem of algebra, take a polynomial, and uh, the fundamental theorem of algebra says that you can factor that polynomial. And, uh, a key point in the proof is to realize that, yeah, well, that's what the statement is, but really all you have to do is find one root of this equation. 
because then you can sort of split off, you can actually rather easily check, it's sort of trivial to check that you can then split that factor off and then you can reduce from a degree n polynomial down to a degree n minus one polynomial. So uh, in fact, uh, that's, uh, that's uh, um, uh, one of the skills that uh, people really do need to develop and it's, it's, uh, it's quite a sophisticated skill. Uh, 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 we shouldn't assume that they know how to do that. Okay. Well, this one's fairly clear. Uh, when we're stuck on a problem, you, you, I think we've all experienced this. We're stuck on a problem, we don't see how to do it, and at a certain point we realize, well, maybe I should step back and look at it from a different point of view, and then it hits you all. Right, it's obvious how to do this. So somehow you've got to develop this ability. Again, this is not so well developed in most of our students. So we, we need to accept that that's one of the skills that they may be somewhat lacking in and that we, we really want them to have, this ability to sort of think from different points of view and to work out what uh, a, a, a good approach to problem. Ah, there we are. Uh, right, Zitzfleisch. Uh, German word. Um, it's a good word. I like it a lot. It literally translates into sitting flesh. And it's, uh, it really um, uh, refers to the fact that uh, really to do mathematics, you, you have to, to do mathematics seriously, you have to develop the ability to sit down at your desk and to focus intensively for a significant period of time on a problem. Uh, so in this day and age, uh, with the 10-second soundbite and texting and uh, um, all the rest of it, cell phones going off, I mean, it's, it really is a skill that I think people don't necessarily, don't necessarily develop. And it's one of the key aspects of mathematical ability, this ability to sit down on your behind for a long period of time and to really focus on the problem. So that, that, that's, a, that's an important one. And uh, indeed, our, our, our honor students do certainly develop that one, no question about it. Then there's a, that's not a word, by the way, I made it up. <laughs> <laughs> but this refers to the, uh, the other important characteristics. You don't have to be sitting on your behind to do mathematics. In fact, one of the things I try to get across to our students is, you know, you don't have to solve the problem in two minutes. Uh, the whole point is to think about it and to, and to mull it over, carry it around with you for a day or two. That's, that's, the, uh, that's the way to do it. And eventually enlightenment will come. In fact, uh, if you work intensively enough and hard enough on a problem, you'll often get a pleasant surprise. You'll go to bed totally confused about what's going on, but the problem will be on your mind. And then you'll wake up the next morning, things will look somehow clearer. The brain has been cooking during the night. And uh, somehow you, you really do. Uh, so this, imp this business of carrying a problem around with you is an important skill and we try to uh, we try to uh, encourage that with our students. It's actually pleasing to see many of our students do reach this point where they're not, they realize that particularly in the honors class that you can't just sit down and solve the homework in one sitting. That's not going to happen. You've got to carry it around with you for a while. And uh, so indeed, 
That's a good one. Apologies to the... I'm sure that's not a word. I'd be very surprised if it was. But. So anyway, it's clear with those sort of skills, and of course, they're not the only skills. I mean, everyone that you ask will give you a different list, but those all sort of overlap. After all, we're talking about a complex process occurring in the human brain. You can't expect it to break up into nice, neat compartments that you can list off. I mean, all of these skills overlap, and uh, I obviously haven't covered all aspects of what's involved, but they're some of the skills. So um, in view of that, let's look at the overall aims then for our honors course. There are obviously then two basic aims. One is to structure the course to try and maximize the development of those skills and related skills, the ones that I've been talking about. So that's the first thing. And the other one is, let's not forget, you've got to cover the core material. It's extremely essential for all their future courses. So it's all very well to talk about uh, 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 developing those skills, but we've also got an added constraint uh, here. We do have to cover a very, very significant amount of material. In fact, uh, let me just uh, mention exactly how much, there's actually quite a significant amount of material. This, this is our text for the first quarter of this course, and we cover the entire text and we do it very rigorously. And there's a whole swathe of topics here um, that uh, um, maybe I'll mention some of them as we go along later. But um, So um, there's sort of a conflict here. On the one hand, we want to develop these skills, and that ideally would mean that we spend a lot of time in lecture uh, emphasizing these skills, a lot of feedback and a lot of uh, cross-checking. Uh, and I try to do that, of course, as much as I can, given the constraints. But but we do have to respect the constraints. We do have this core material that we have to cover. And uh, so we have to try and rec reconcile these, uh, these, um, uh, these constraints. So let me spend some time talking about how we do that. That's sort of the crux of the matter. How do we reconcile these two aims? Well, uh, I think above anything else, even above the lectures in a sense, the, the homework is of crucial importance. Uh, that's when all the work really gets done, when they're sitting down struggling with their homework. So um, this is a little bit different than the regular classes where the homework is more routine. Here we actually ask them problems that are designed to develop those skills that I was talking about. So the, some of the problems are quite difficult and so, uh, many of them are very theoretical in nature. So they're things that they do have to think about uh, uh, for a significant period of time, and as I said, carry around with them and so on. So in order to enhance that experience, we make certain rules in the class. Uh, that is that they can certainly go to the TA to uh, try to get help, but they're not allowed to go to the TA to say, how do I do this problem? That's a definite no-no that's laid out right at the beginning. That is not allowed. What they can do is go to the TA and ask, uh, can you give me a hint? I'm stuck on this problem. I don't see how to get it started. Uh, can you give me a hint on how to do this problem? And the TA will then give them a hint. Of course, you've got to, in an honors class like this, when you're trying to develop these skills, it's extremely important to have an excellent quality TA. Uh, my colleague here always gives me a good TA, I'm pleased to um, say. But we use one of the best TAs in the department always for this class, and for this reason, it's a skill. The TA has to have thought about this in advance. He has to have thought about the homework problems in advance in order to be able to answer the uh, 
question in, in the appropriate way. Can you give me a hint? Well, if he hasn't thought about the problem, he's going to mull around and eventually tell the student how to do the problem before he knows what he's doing. So it's very important that you've got a TA that is both expert and very conscientious and uh, will uh, will follow this, this procedure. So that's, the, uh, that's one thing. Um, notice you get a double payoff here uh, with this approach. Um, uh, um, not only uh, do you get them developing these skills, uh, but also we can use the homework to develop some of the theory that would otherwise be developed in lecture, and we often do that. I'll often set a homework problem, and then next week I'll use one of the results from that homework in the lecture. It saves a tremendous amount of time. Otherwise, we would not be able to cover all material in a, in a uh, sufficiently uh, thorough manner within the lectures. We'd simply run out of time. So this is a sort of a double payoff uh, here. And uh, it, it actually is a system that seems to work extremely well. But again, oh, th there's another point here too that you should be extremely cautious about. If you're, if you're relying on your homework to such a great extent in developing your students' mathematical skills and their knowledge, then you'd better be extremely careful not only about your TA but also about your grader. Very, very important to have a top quality grader. So you can't really just leave it to the department administrator to say your grader next quarter will be Mr. X. What you, I typically go and recruit graders myself uh, from the best students of previous years. So I, I know the students and I typically recruit them. Uh, so I get a really couple of top class graders and they, they know what the, what the situation is and they know how to arrange uh, um, they know what's expected of them. Uh, in particular, they know that in this class we demand rigor, that sloppy arguments are not acceptable, and that uh, um, they will be graded down. So exposition counts, rigor counts, and uh, uh, the right answer counts as well, of course. So uh, that's, uh, that's one to keep in mind. Uh, over the years, I've had various experiences with graders. There's a concept in the, in the department known as a rogue grader. It's sort of like a rogue trader on Wall Street, but it's a rogue grader. <laughs> and a rogue grader is a person that simply ticks every question right that, that has been attempted, and every question that hasn't been attempted, he marks wrong and then assigns the score. In other words, he's a completely dishonest, unscrupulous person. And it's happened. I, I've had one of those rogue graders. And so it's extremely important to keep track of your grader to double check uh, that your grader is doing the job at least reasonably conscientiously. All right. So that's that. All right. Um, the lecture format. We in the math department take a lot of flack because we still use blackboard and chalk. I think people think we do that because we're retrograde. We can't adjust to the times. That's not true. <laughs> Mathematics does not come out of a can. It's as simple as that. Uh, and therefore, your lectures should not either. And um, let me try to explain the, the, why that is so. You see, we're trying to develop these skills, uh, that are real mathematical skills, particularly in the honors class. Uh, OK, I accept that in a routine class, maybe a canned lecture might work to some extent. I accept that. But, but in an honors class, it does not work. And, and the reason, I think, is fairly clear. 
that um, we're trying to develop these skills. So they should be seeing someone uh, in lecturing them who's actually doing mathematics in real time right before their face. So uh, that really, so you should be setting the example of how mathematics is done. So uh, in a sense, it's better not to be overprepared. So let me hastily say preparation is extremely important in, in mathematics. There's no getting around that. You can't go into a lecture unprepared. But going into a lecture overprepared is actually not good. It, it ends up being a little bit like a canned lecture typically then. So uh, it's good to be stuck a little bit occasionally, as long as you're basically prepared. I mean, it's not good to be stuck for 10 minutes, and uh, that's a very bad thing. But uh, it's good to be stuck for a minute or two, as long as you enjoy it, and as long as you get the students to help you out, uh, as long as you don't get nervous about that. But, but it, it's a good thing because the students can see that you're actually doing the mathematics in real time and that, that they see how you're doing the mathematics and they see it develop in front of their face. It's a totally different experience than the canned lecture. Uh, so that's uh, something that we, so we don't use blackboard and chalk because we've never realized that there's a better way. That's not the explanation. It's, because we, we do honestly think that is still the best method for presenting mathematics. Okay, and uh, let me say the same thing in a slightly different way here. So uh, your lectures should, of course, do more than just present the material in a clear and simple way. Always, as the lecture develops, you should always have in mind these other aims, this is the development of these other math skills. So, uh, for example, um, uh, when you're presenting a complicated proof, which we do a lot in, in the honors class, you should try to get down to the essence of it, point out to the student, get, let them in on the secret. What's the real idea behind the proof here? Don't just, you know, it's not good just to present the material in a clear and straightforward way. That's not enough. You've got to do more. You have to actually try to explain uh, what's really behind it. How, how would this have been thought of, for instance, is a good question try to get the students to understand uh, what the process was, how could the uh, originator of this theory have, have actually come up with the basic ideas. And the interesting thing is, it's pretty nearly always true, it, even in the most advanced mathematics, that the best ideas are very simple. I don't say easy, I say simple. The best ideas are very, very simple. Uh, people don't usually believe that, but it's, it's true, it's very true. All right, so, um, well, I, I'm a sort of a traditionalist. I, I don't believe you can give it something like a freshman honors class without giving proper written examinations that really test the students quite rigorously. Uh, I don't believe in take-home exams for this sort of class. It never seems to work. Miraculously, the weaker students suddenly do brilliantly in a take-home exam. What does that mean? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think that's really quite believable. So. Uh, it doesn't hurt to force students. The extrinsic motivation can be very good. Uh, these kids have got a huge amount of intrinsic mo motivation, by the way. They're extremely enthused about their mathematics and they're very, very motivated. But it doesn't hurt to give them some extrinsic, I mean, human nature being what it is, you, you tend to put things off and say, yeah, I've, I've basically got that covered, but I'll really work it out next week. Uh, you know, if you give them a rigorous exams regularly, we give them two midterm exams at about the 
fourth week of the quarter and the eighth uh, and the seventh week of the quarter and then the final exam, three-hour written exam, uh, I think really is very, very useful. It really makes sure that they uh, maintain their focus and main, keep on top of things. They can't afford to let things slip because there's, there's just too much required of them as far as the exams are concerned. So uh, that's, uh, that's about it. And um, well, let's spend a little bit of time. Now there's the practical issues. Um, uh, you've got to try to visualize the situation here. So uh, on the first day of the quarter in Math 51H, that's the first quarter of this honor sequence, we have a room full of highly enthusiastic freshmen, about 110 of them typically. And they all want to do honors math. They, they've heard about the course and they really badly want to do it. And uh, well, uh, the sad fact is that not all of them are going to be able to do it. Uh, some of them are going to fall by the wayside. Uh, uh, so the way that happens is typically uh, uh, after the first week's homework, typically we're down to about 80 just in one homework. And let me say that uh, th there's a crucial point here, actually. People sometimes make the mistake of thinking, oh, look, there's too many people. I've got to burn the class off. OK, maybe that's true, but you better be careful how you burn the class off, because you may be burning off exactly the people you don't want to lose. You've got to remember that there's a group of people in the middle uh, who have got uh, very strong mathematical abilities, at least potentially, but they have not been developed yet and they're lacking in confidence for that reason. They think, well, should I be in this class or should I not be in this class? They sort of don't know. And if you come down heavily and say, look, this class is only for the absolute best people and I'm going to give you an impossible first week's homework just to prove it, then you'll lose those people. And there are some, some of the best people come from that group actually, ultimately, I mean, some of the best people typically come from that group. So you'd better be careful about how this is done. It's an extremely delicate business and, and it requires, a, this is the hardest part of the whole program actually, working out how to handle the first few weeks while we get the class down to the correct size. And, uh, um, as I say, there are various things you can do. The first homework, even though it does already achieve a significant reduction, is not impossible at all. It's actually fairly straightforward. Let me give you, a, for the mathematicians in the audience, let me mention a couple of the problems that we ask in that first homework. One is prove that square root of two is irrational. Now, we don't just ask that. That would be unreasonable, because they may have never seen that problem before. It would be unreasonable just to ask that without any hint about how you would go about it. So we ask them that, and then we give them the hint. Assume, on the contrary, that it is rational. In other words, you can write square root of 2 equals p over q, where p and q are integers with q non-zero, and then go from there to get a contradiction. And uh, that, so that's one question we ask. Then, the next question which follows on from that is prove that every interval of the real line contains infinitely many rationals and infinitely many irrationals. Now that's a problem that people with a math bent, even if they're lacking a little bit in confidence, can achieve if they really sit down and think about it and work at it. That they can do that, that you use the root two thing. It's not very difficult once you know how to do it, but then most things are like that. It's not very difficult once you know how to do it. And <laughs> Uh, so, 
um, that that's the sort of challenging problem that we asked them in the first week. And of course, they the, they love that. I mean, the, this is what they expect to get from an honors class. But the sad fact is, as I said, that some simply are not prepared to put in the time, or nor do they have really the background to 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 do that. Uh, um, you know, we, we do require a five in BC calculus, which is the highest advanced placement level you can get in math. But somehow, apparently, it's not that difficult to get a five in BC calculus. Because uh, it's, uh, not, all those people will, uh, not all those people will be capable of handling the material in this class. So um, that's the first thing. Uh, uh, that, that's the other thing. You, you, you do have to accept that. You do have to accept that uh, not, not everyone will be able to handle this class, and you've got to work out a, a reasonable method for reducing the class down to its uh, size. Uh, so that's the way it works in the first week. We get down to about 80. Then by the time we get to the uh, midterm exam, uh, there's still usually 75 or so, maybe 70 left in the class. The midterm exam is in the fourth week, typically, just before the drop deadline. You, you want to give them a chance to work out whether they're really going to survive this class. So uh, uh, then we give them the first midterm, and, uh, and then by that stage, people really do get the message. I mean, the, the human capacity for self-deception is almost limitless, you know. I mean, until they see the score on that midterm, they can't quite believe that this class is not going to be working for them. They've got to see that score. And, but, you know, it really is uh, a tricky business because uh, you've got to understand the psychology here. We've got this whole group of people coming in. They're all enthused about their mathematics. Some of them come from small high schools that have never sent a student to Stanford before. And they're the best math student that they've had for three or four years, maybe ever. And I'm telling them that they can't do mathematics. I mean, this is pretty, uh, this can be extremely traumatic. So we, we have to try and handle that. Fortunately, here uh, it works out uh, that there's a sort of a safety net here because we have the regular non-honors class runs exactly parallel to our honors class for the most of the quarter. So actually, it's fairly easy for a, for a person that's dropping out of the honors class to go into the, into the um, regular stream. And it's not too much of a trauma. In fact, it's pretty, pretty routine. And they usually do pretty well in the, in the regular stream. So there's some sort of compensation there. But still, it, it is a bit of a trauma for some people. And we should be aware of that. It's, it's not easy to, to, uh, to um, accept that for some people. But maybe math is not for them. So uh, that's, uh, that's um, basically the content of what I was going to talk about. And I'd like to finish on a slightly lighter note. I want to show you Tom Lehrer's take on the new math from uh, 1970. Uh, um, let's see if we can crank this up. I hope it works. All right, Bill Gates. <laughs> Some of you who have small children may have perhaps been put in the embarrassing oh, position of okay. being unable to do your child's arithmetic homework. Yeah, so we've got sound but no image. Okay. It's behind. It's behind. Right. We're going to cover subtraction. 
this is the first room I've worked for a while that didn't have a blackboard, so we would have to make do. Cancel. Visual aids, as they say in the ad biz. Let me start that again. Some of you who have small children may have perhaps been put in the embarrassing position of being unable to do your child's arithmetic homework because of the current revolution in mathematics teaching known as the new math. So as a public service here tonight, I thought I would offer a brief lesson in the new math tonight. We're going to cover subtraction. This is the first room I've worked for a while that didn't have a blackboard, so we will have to make do with more primitive visual aids, as they say in the ad biz. Consider the following subtraction problem. Try to put up there. 342 minus 173. Now, remember how we used to do that. 3 from 2 is 9, carry the 1. And if you're under 35 or went to a private school, you say 7 from 3 is 6. But if you're over 35 and went to a public school, you say 8 from 4 is 6. So we have 169. But in the new approach, as you know, the important thing is to understand what you're doing rather than to get the right answer. <laughs> Here's how they do it now. You can't take 3 from 2. 2 is less than 3, so you look at the 4 in the tens place. Now that's really 4 tens, so you make a 3 tens, regroup, and you change a 10 to 10 once, and you add to the 2 and get 12, and take away 3 and 10. Instead of 4 in the tens place, you've got 3, because you added 1, that is to say 10 to 2, but you can't take 7 from 3, so you look in the hundreds place. From the 3, you then use 1 to make 10 ones, and you know why 4 plus minus 1 plus 10 is 14 minus 1, because addition is commutative, right? <laughs>
That was, by the way, not Tom Lehrer. It, it was uh, Tom Lehrer's voice, but he was actually lip-syncing Tom Lehrer's original song. So, thank you for listening. And if anyone has questions, we can... Yeah, Adrian. So, Leah, I'm in the front lines um, at the lower end of the, uh, of the first year That's of true. mathematics spectrum. That's true. You don't get to teach the honors class, so I'm sorry for you. <laughs> no, it's been all right. My classes is good, are good. Um, but tell me, um, how does some of your um, strategies and aims uh, have to be modified to, to yeah. be well, used in these classes? Yeah. Well, uh, yes, you, you can apply some of these principles clearly, but some you equally clearly cannot, right? I mean... You're, you're, you'll be expecting a great deal if you expect your regular class students to be carrying around a math problem in their head for three days trying to solve it, right? Some of them might, but it's not to be expected, I don't think. So things uh, take on a more rote, routine character, right? And you have to accept that and try to work around it. But I think you can still apply some of the principles. For instance, in lecture, even though you not focusing so much on the theory, you can still try to give them those insights where they get the feeling, yes, this guy is giving me the real story. I'm, I'm getting something here that I can't get out of a textbook. That, that's one of the things we really should achieve. And uh, you, you can try to do that. Uh, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it's sort of a different kettle of fish somewhat, really. Yeah, I was actually cheered to see, Leon, that um, you talked about the key skills characteristic mm -hmm. of math people. Yeah. And there's actually quite a lovely overlap between those and between what people in the education field who talk about deep versus surface learning. Oh, okay. You've even right. used the word right. here, you know, yeah. going beyond the superficial. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, no, I'm sure a lot of those points that I made uh, apply equally to many other subjects and maybe all other subjects in some sense, but yeah. Well, and I, I find that cheering because yeah. I do think a lot of students feel that mathematics will be singularly challenging uh -huh. and difficult. Yeah. People that may not have shown much aptitude for it in the beginning. And I'm tempted to think if more students realize these were the characteristics that could serve them well in the long run in mathematics that maybe some of the negative mystery around mathematics mm -hmm. could be dissipated. Yeah. So I am curious yeah. though, do you actually explicitly discuss these objectives with students? I don't, ex I don't exactly discuss, discuss the objectives as objectives, but I'm constantly harping on them whenever we come across a new theorem. I say, now don't just sit there passively. Try to work out what the special cases are. Try to understand what this is really saying, blah, blah, blah. So we're constantly <coughs> on that theme. Uh, that uh, um, you know, I, I always try to, keep re I, I try to keep reminding them that mathematics is not a passive process. Uh, in fact, one of the things I tell them is that you know, when you're reading a piece of mathematics, it's not like reading a novel. You don't read mathematics. You work through mathematics. 
uh, that's a, it's a totally different concept. Just reading a piece of mathematics doesn't really achieve anything. I mean, even for a mathematician, he would have trouble understanding what's going on if he just read the statement and did nothing else. I mean, you have to sort of work through it and uh, apply some of those skills that I was talking about, the ability to strip it down to its essentials, the ability to, to uh, um, uh, uh, you know, those, those other skills that I mentioned. And uh, really is, is a very, very active process, and I try to get them to adopt that uh, uh, principle in class, that, that they're not just sitting there absorbing the, or trying to absorb the material, but they're actually thinking every time they see a term put up, I tell them, look, as I'm presenting this material, you should be asking yourself, do I know what that means? Do I know how it connects to the previous stuff? And so on. So try to, I try to get them to, to develop those good habits uh, where they're actively involved in the, in the lecture. And these kids are really motivated, so they, they typically do try to do that. I thought I'd also mention, since you had talked about mathematicians' use of blackboards, that the speaker next time, Professor Umran Enon from Double yeah. E, told us he's actually gone back to using the blackboard ah, uh -huh. after he's having He's attained tried. enlightenment. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, and basically because he said the students urged him and have urged other engineering professors yeah. To go back to the blackboard, <coughs> students actually find it a better pacing for Absolutely. taking notes and absorbing uh, material. As I said, they can see that the person's really, it's really happening in real time. This person is, is actually producing the material. He's thinking and he's producing the material. <coughs> he's getting stuck and he's making a mistake and so on. It's real, the real world, in a sense, uh, that is being put up in front of them. And that's really how you do mathematics. And I think that's the point. You can't really do that out of the can. It just doesn't work. So you can use the blackboard without guilt. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, I do. On the other hand, the number of blackboards around the campus is a shrinking commodity, I've noticed. That's maybe someone should think about that. that uh, you know, we've still got blackboards in the math department, but we can't always find a lecture room. And then it's getting harder and harder to find other rooms around the campus that have blackboards. Thank you for making a note of that. <laughs> <laughs> yes? Is math taught essentially the same way in all countries, or are there cultural differences? I think there are cultural differences, actually. Uh, even between Australia, where I come from, and here. Uh, in Australia, it's a bit more rough and tumble. The students are sort of expected to be thrown back on their own devices, and Maybe it's changed in recent times, but, but here we tend to think more about what the student is experiencing and how best to help them out and so on. Uh, I do think there are cultural differences. The Germans, for example, would take a very strict, rigorous approach to things, even in their regular classes, uh, more so than we do here, I would say. So yeah, there are definite cultural differences. But I think the basic principles that I was talking about are fairly invariant. I, I don't think they would change a great deal from country to country. Would France be kind of an exception? Uh, no, France, I think it has very high standards of math education. Yeah, yeah. Uh, really, and uh, someone was telling me that um, even to get advanced in the French public service is a big plus to have mathematical background. Uh, 
Uh, whereas here, it could be considered a negative. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> yes? What do your students who are enrolled in your honors freshman course, what do they go on to do? Are they math majors? And if they're not math yeah, majors, most of them end up, uh, I would say probably more than half of them end up being math majors, and the others uh, I maybe do a double major, do physics or something like that. So they typically end up doing something that's closely related to math, so they really do make use of their math experience. It, it gives them, uh, this class gives them a very good grounding to go on to various other areas. And some of them do double majors too with math and, and Do you track um, after graduation yeah, we're a bit lax on that. Um, we, we do sort of keep, we know the people that have gone on to graduate school, of course, because over the four years that they're here, we get to know them rather well. Mm -hmm. So we know those people, but we're a bit lax on keeping track about where people actually ultimately end up. Mm -hmm. uh, it would be very interesting to do that, and we probably should do it. But uh, I don't think there's been any systematic uh, attempt so far to do that. Yeah, it's always different. I mean, somehow that's the thing about mathematics and learning mathematics. It really is very difficult to sort of do it just solitary by yourself. Some people can achieve it, but they're sort of exceptional. It really is, in, uh, of course, the right text can help immensely in, in that regard. So I think the text that we're using at the moment, oh, I shouldn't say that because I wrote it, but, <laughs> but <laughs> I think the text that we're using at the moment is, is a reasonably good one for individual study. But on the other hand, it would be too demanding for most kids to pick up that book and to start learning out of it without some outside assistance. So, so it, it's, it's not easy to, to do that. But these days with the web and so on, if they're really motivated, they can probably achieve it. I mean, almost any question you ask, you can find an instant answer on the web. It's just amazing. I'm still astounded by this technology. I still can't quite believe it because I grew up before, I mean, when the computers I first noticed were big, huge roomfuls of things and run by people with white coats. <laughs> You could never get near them, and uh, they were just doing number crunching and so on. So in fact, I can remember at Stanford when I came here in the 1970s as an assistant professor, I remember laughing when I heard that someone had actually written their thesis on a computer. I mean, I thought, what a ridiculous thing to do, to actually type your thesis on a computer. Now, of course, I mean, you wouldn't think of doing anything else but, but in those days, there wasn't any real software, and it seemed like such an odd thing. That, you know, those were the days of electric typewriters and so on. Well, changed very quickly. Oh well, thank you so much. Thank you all, and hope to see you on April thirtieth. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.